Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. This is episode 188. Today, we learn about the principles and practices of effective transformational writing instruction. Every year, my MLs are assessed on their language proficiency using the WIDA model. To exit, my students have to reach phase five. The description between phase four and five reads, approaching comparability to English proficient peers. There's a line between them, yet I feel that line is almost like a gigantic chasm. That single phrase is the gatekeeper for many of my MLs and I feel like one of the most difficult things for me to teach. My students have acquired social language, but they have yet to fully develop sophisticated, eloquent academic language proficiency. I struggled for so many years to figure out what to do to move them to the next phase. I did not know how to teach them how to write with a variety of sentence structures, with transitions that are coherent. I knew that isolated grammar instruction did not work. They were boring and students never transferred these ideas to their own writing. So I moved to writing workshops. They wrote more and about personal experiences, but their writing wasn't any better. However, my practice changed immediately when I discovered Judith Hockman's and Natalia Weckler's book, The Writing Revolution. Their book lit the path to eloquent, sophisticated, coherent writing instruction. In this podcast, you will hear how we can finally support MLs in their ability to acquire academic writing skills. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so excited. Not just excited, possibly the most excited I have been this year to interview Judith Hockman and Natalie Wexler. Let me tell you how revolutionary your writing, your book has been for me. So I discovered your book when I watched Natalie Wexler's uh, video with Ed Ed Webb in May. The second I learned about it, I went and got the book. That was in May. And then in, at the end of May, I started planning for my unit in, Dece- in the, for the next school year based upon the writing revolution. And then I spent my summer, like when I did walks around my neighborhood, I would read every chapter. And then when I did presentations over the summer, I implemented your strategies right away in the presentations. And today I'm kind of feeling sick. I even went home early today to go... Uh, projectile vomit into my toilet and take a nap. <laughs> but I was thinking I will not cancel this podcast because I have Judith Hopman and Natalie Wexler on the podcast. So that's how revolution, how like important this podcast is to me for to me today. So welcome to you both. Well, we're honored. Thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Let's uh, start with this. Can you please share a story about um, working with teachers and students that has really changed your practice? Judy, you want to go first? 
No, why don't you go first, Natalie? Well, I think about it a little bit. More. <laughs> well, I, I I did think about it because I'm not uh, a practitioner. I'm not a teacher. Um, I'm a writer. Uh, so really, for me, this question was, what have I observed as a writer or, or you know, an education researcher and not in the academic sense that's changed my thinking and specifically about writing? And I and there are a number of them, but I, I think um, basically what I've learned from working with Judy, um, you know, going into classrooms is how we uh, how much we underestimate how difficult writing is for most students. And I'm, I'm I mean I write all the time, so to me it's almost like second nature. But so the the uh, memory that came to mind was uh, I was visiting a school in Washington D.C. where I live that had partnered with the Writing Revolution organization um, and. So the teachers had been, you know, not only read the book, but also had been getting some training and coaching. And I was in a classroom. And this, by the way, was a school, it was a high school that had a lot of multilingual learners. Um, we have uh, many multilingual learners in Washington, D.C. And the teacher was basically introducing them to the concept of writing a topic sentence for a paragraph, which you know, I mean, I think of that's that's the you know kids do that, little kids do that, but it's really it it really requires a lot of analysis and the ability to generalize. And so what he was doing was just having them. Now he was using a a season, the fall, autumn, as a way of introducing this concept because you don't want to have kids juggling some new concept along with a new grammatical concept. So he was introducing this in familiar content. And he just had kids like brainstorm whatever they thought could think about the fall. What, you know, what happens in the fall? Well, oh, the, it, the weather gets cooler. The leaves start changing color. They came up with all of these things. And then he said, he looked at, he wrote all these things on the board and he said, so, you know, what do all these things like, or not all of these things, but many of these things have in common. How could we come up with a sentence that, that describes many of these things? And they, I could see like the wheels turning in these kids' minds. And they eventually they came up with the sentence, fall is a season of change. And I just thought, you know, this was, it was amazing. It was like I was getting a window into learning um, and, and seeing this teacher guide these students through this really complex process that we just expect kids to pick up on their own. Well, you know, um, I, I think, you know, what really made a huge impact on me was how unprepared teachers were to teach writing, that they, they enter the classroom as newbies or they've been teaching for decades and they really don't know some fundamentals about what works with writing. And that was also true for a number of decades with reading. And um, as, as a young teacher, many decades ago, I was right in there. I mean, I didn't really know what I was doing and, you know, just knew that I really loved being in front of a classroom and I loved the kids, but there was really no professional knowledge behind that that would have helped me navigate what I had to do to really teach effectively. And as the years went on, and particularly when I became an administrator, it just was blindingly obvious that in this area, which is needed through life in every profession that you can think of, okay, from, well, 
in every profession, you need to write. And it goes from just taking notes all the way to a coherent email, an argument, uh, you know, doing some research on something. And the teachers really were not prepared to teach this as a result of the education that they got in their teacher training institutions. And uh, so in most of their teacher training institutions, I should say. So I became, through my interactions with some very frustrated teachers who particularly began to be emerged as writing was assessed much more at the state level um, and their children were not coming out so well, I became really interested in this, that without this particular skill and without the skill reinforcing the knowledge that you wanted them to learn, you were really depriving them of a very important tool in life. And that's the story. <laughs> you both talked about the same thing in your stories, that writing is so hard and it has to be taught explicitly. It can't just be, oh, I'm going to sign a task, a writing task and go write. And then, then you learn. I think, I mean, before I read your book, I read almost every book on the writing workshop. And that's a great approach, but I'm realizing I actually never taught writing, how to write. I taught the process of writing, but I never taught explicitly, like, how do you combine sentences together? How do you expand sentences? How do you write a subordinate conjunction? I thought that that was all just grammar, but it's actually now moving from grammar instruction to how do you communicate complex ideas clearly? That's That was your revolution for me. That's good. <laughs> would you, Judith, would you tell me about um, how you started uh, with Writing Revolution at your school? Because I know, and, and when I read your book, you talked about this started really at um, a school that you were working at. You were the head of head of school there. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about background and then how that became a book and then oh, how that became an article for the Atlantic? How it became an article for well, um, it was it was a school for learning and in, in uh, language disabled students, and they and teaching writing was a challenge. And one day, before I actually became the head of the school, I went to a workshop in New Jersey, which was about teaching writing to Spanish speaking students, which might be of interest. They had a a lot of uh, migrants from Spanish-speaking countries and teaching kids to write and getting these students ultimately into mainstream classes and away from ESL classes <clears throat> was a goal. And as I sat up there and listened to them, I thought, first of all, I have to employ a lot of the things that they're talking about to the learning and language disabled kids because um, writing in its own way is a second language, and that's not going to be easy for them to learn. And um, I went back and I began to experiment with what ultimately became a method of teaching writing. It's not a writing curriculum. It's a method of teaching writing that can be applied to any subject and to any grade. And... <laughs> 
It took a while and I made some missteps along the way, but it, what really helped is that I always found time to be in front of a classroom actually teaching the kids, which is frankly what I enjoyed most about my job anywhere I went. And um, teaching the children taught me a lot. And then um, at a certain point, I went out and I decided that teaching writing was all I was interested in and was all I wanted to do. And one of the schools that um, I found myself in was a large high school in Staten Island, New York, of a few thousand kids where many, many languages, 10 was spoken, were spoken. And uh, <clears throat> they began to implement this method which got a tremendous amount of attention, including from a journalist who wrote mainly about education. And she wrote an excellent article, which came out of the Atlantic. And that was the, really the beginning um, of the organization, the writing revolution. And after that was around for a couple of years, I had the tremendous good fortune to meet Natalie Wexler. And she agreed to uh, co-author a book because we had a book about the method, but it really wasn't very comprehensive to say the least. And uh, someone suggested that it really should be memorialized. The method should be memorialized in a more comprehensive way. And I have to say, having Natalie in my life definitely <laughs> made that possible because um, I'm not the greatest writer in the world, but Natalie made me all the way up there. So uh, that's how the writing revolution came to be, both the organization and the book, and the title, by the way, of the Atlantic article. We're not too creative about these titles, or we weren't at the time. So there you have it. Natalie, do you want to add? Well, I want to just add that it, I consider it to be my great good fortune to have met Judy Hockman. And I met her, I think, shortly before the Writing Revolution organization came into existence. And I asked if I could be on the board. And she was, she said, oh, I was scared to ask you, you know, I thought you might say no. Anyway, it was a marriage made in heaven, I guess. Um, and I have learned an enormous amount from Judy, um, it just including about the the importance of building kids' knowledge, um, you you know, which is the topic of this other book that I wrote all by myself, um, and that that is intimately connected with teaching writing. You you cannot teach writing in a sort of vacuum of content. It has to be embedded in rich content, pre preferably the the content of the core curriculum, across the curriculum. Well, that was going to be one of my questions. Do you want to talk about that? Why, by the way, I listened to every single one of your podcasts for the Knowledge Gap podcast. I instantly, yes, the Knowledge Matters podcast. It was amazing. It was like NPR level quality. You had people snipped in there. Uh, you had multiple voices, multiple people. And I was like, how is she doing this? This is such excellent, high quality production of a podcast it's like no wonder you have so many reviews and I um, tell people as much as possible to listen to that podcast in particular 
teachers who are working in schools where they get pulled out of social studies class and science classes to learn more English. And I'm like, uh, stop. Please go listen to uh, Natalie Wexler's podcast first, and then we'll come talk. Well, thank you for that uh, compliment. I have to say, I was as surprised as anyone that we actually managed to get it out and sounding as good as it did, because we did it in three months or so. I mean, it was just... And I said, I kept saying, I don't think this is going to work, but I had, you know, a team of people, you know, recording engineer and people who knew how to put together a podcast. So I did basically write the scripts, but, and and I did the voice, you know, I, I was the narrator, et cetera, but uh, it would, believe me, if I'd done it all by myself, it wouldn't have sounded like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, the, and there is one episode in that six part series, specifically looking at writing and what surprised me when I, I was interviewing three different teachers and two of them said without my knowing they were going to say this, well, I read the writing revolution and that really changed my approach to writing. So, so there was over, definitely overlap. Would you tell us about the very quickly, um, the research behind like, why is content knowledge so important for writing instruction? Yeah, well, for a couple of reasons, uh, at least. And and one is that you, you really can't write about a topic you don't know anything about, or even just even a tiny bit about. And um, we have in the United States, maybe elsewhere, um, these writing curricula that have been developed that have, you know, they, kids get maybe three paragraphs to read about a topic, and then they're supposed to write an essay about that topic, or, you know, and they don't, have enough information to write coherently. Um, and, and we also, we have a, a, an approach to literacy in this country that puts comp reading comprehension skills like finding the main idea of a text or making inferences in the foreground. And so the topics are not considered important. You know, it doesn't really matter what the topic is as long as kids are practicing whatever the skill is. And what that leads to is not knowing very much about anything. And so with a curriculum like that, which is used in most schools in the United States, Kids don't have anything that they can write about. And what I've heard over and over again from teachers who have switched to a, a curriculum that provides kids with rich content that like immerses them in a topic for several weeks, even if they're not using the writing revolution, they, they often say, oh, my, my kid's writing is so much better because they, they have stuff they want to write about and they actually know stuff. And, you know, it's just like it's common sense, right, um, that, that you, if you want kids to write, you have to provide them with enough information to equip them to do that. But the other thing about writing is that it is, in addition to being a valuable skill in itself, an incredibly potentially powerful lever for deepening and reinforcing the knowledge that kids are, are taking in um, from their reading or, or whatever in, in any subject. Um, because, I mean, you just sort of know this at a gut level when if, if you've written about something, you understand it better, you remember it better. But I think um, a more sort of cognitive science-y explanation is that writing is both a very powerful way of transferring new information to long-term memory and also practicing retrieving that information from long-term memory. And the, the more you practice retrieving an item of information, the more likely you are to be able to get it when you need it. So, but also in writing, you know, you are, uh, if you, if it's been taught explicitly and, and in a manageable way, you're constantly analyzing things, making connections between points of information, figuring out what something really means. 
and maybe sometimes discovering that you didn't know as much about it as much about it as you thought you did and you need to go and find out more so there are all of these things that writing does for learning and we have you know there's not a whole lot of good writing research out there but we do have a meta-analysis of about 56 studies of um, having kids write about what they're learning not just in actually not in english language arts but in so social studies science and math and what that meta-analysis showed that across the board any subject any grade level when kids write about what they're learning, it boosts their learning. So we really need to pay attention to that. Judith, you want to add to that? Well, I, it, Natalie expressed it so perfectly. And it really is, uh, we see writing to be in the service of knowledge, okay, of, of acquiring knowledge. And uh, in, in thinking about the method that we wanted to use to facilitate this process, we thought about, well, what do kids need most in life? What are they going to be required to do as they move along through the grades? They're going to have to learn expository writing, writing that explains or informs. And I'm, I'm including argument within the expository framework. And um, without that, they're really handicapped in whatever they do, even if it's a brief email to an employer, if it's filling in an application and writing why they may want to work in a particular place, right up until the kind of assignments that they will get in post-secondary and secondary levels. And so we took the personal experience aspect, which is very common in some teachers who use the writing workshop model, and the journal writing and the poems and the memoirs and figured, well, they're really not asked to show a journal very often or show a poem to a prospective employer or write a memoir on a college application, except in a specific area. So let's take those off the table and let's just think about how do we get them to think to gain the knowledge that Natalie was referring to. And, you know, there's our very popular strategy, but I think that it, it, um, it, it encompasses a lot of our thinking instead of saying um, the industrial revolution was an important event in the history of, you know, because you could say the industrial revolution was important because the industrial revolution was important, but, and so, and there you go back to what Natalie was saying about the analytic part of how you set kids up to really think critically and to, and the principles that we mentioned in the book can be applied <clears throat> through the grades and across the curriculum. So whether it's science or math or social studies, it shouldn't just live in the English classes. There should be a common language about speaking about writing. And a lot of the teachers see that the things that we um, <clears throat> are trying to teach at a very granular level with writing appear in their oral language. And it was at this large high school in Staten Island that I used to hear kids first, I first really heard it there, with kids saying, and therefore, 
But however, and starting sentences with although when they were making presentations, either in a moot court setting or what, and I thought, oh, this has tremendous potential. And that's um, that's what I would add to it. Well, you wrote in your book that in the introduction of your book, the school that you're talking about, there was such a low um, proficiency rate, but I think it was, I think 50 something, and then it went up to 80 something. Right. And like that, that, that's why the person who wrote the Atlantic article was like, wait, that's unheard of with most schools. But the fact that you're working at a school for students with uh, disabilities, the fact that they've jumped that much, we have to do a story on this. Well, you're you're conflating uh, the two schools. The the high school, um, their their proficiency level, their graduation level, even some behavioral issues when they started winning awards for their essays and all were very impressive. With what happened at the school for learning and language disabilities is that one of the goals of the school was to return students to mainstream classes. And when they did in fact return to mainstream classes, their performance in writing was actually better than the students in general education. So we found ourselves, we were giving courses in the method. We thought it would be mainly to resource room, ESL teachers and so forth. No, we found many mainstream teachers begin to start taking our courses. Because and then this is back in in this the special needs school, so um, this was very rewarding. So, I would I would just add that in, you know in addition to the statistics and I, I think one of the the strengths of that article and and something that has happened again and again I'm sure since that article came out was focusing on individual what what it means for an individual student to go from not being able to put a coherent sentence together to being able to write a coherent argumentative essay and what that does to the the way they see themselves and what they're capable of doing and what they deserve from life and whether they should go to college and all of those things, uh, you know, it's, it's really can be life-changing to teach a kid to write well. Absolutely. I mean, it's like they, they know how to think. They just don't have, don't know the structure and which way to communicate it. And if we can give them that, that, those writing skills, those communication skills, then their brilliance will be seen. I think, the, the brilliance of your book is that I used to be part of like the um, reading, writing, the writing workshop method with like Ralph Fletcher, like the Ralph Fletcher, right? And at the end of the year, my students wrote more, but they did not write better. But I think with your writing method, my students are writing a lot less than the before with the writing workshop, but they're writing more coherently. Like they're looking at full stops. The other day, I was, we were working on like the um, starting with a subordinate conjunction of when. And my student, who's a sleepier student, we're, we were writing on a Google Doc and then they could see other students' sentences. That one sleepy student said, hey, where's your comma? I almost fainted. I was like, <laughs> you you actually listened and you... And you actually thought about, wait, where's your comma in this sentence? And he was teaching someone else. And I was like, this is proof beyond proof that it works. Because what your book does is just so systematic. You start with, can we start with a sentence first? Like, 
a full sentence. Noun and predicate. Uh, so noun and predicate. Then let's move to expanding the sentence with because and 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 so and, and then let's move to supporting conjunctions and then let's move to taking notes and then let's move to writing a paragraph and then planning the paragraph and writing and composition. It was it your book is like the guide map for writing instruction for busy teachers who are like I don't have time to think about the sequencing you gave us the sequencing and that's why your book is has 2000 plus reviews on Amazon to have an education book have 100 is hard enough the <laughs> fact that there's a writing book out there that has 2000 plus reviews that's sacred writing right that's a that's proof of the quality of your book well it it, it uh, certainly was a very pleasant surprise to Natalie and myself. I was going to say, I didn't expect it to be like a bestseller. (laughs) Right. I didn't think the publisher did either, Natalie. But here's the thing. Um, Left to their own devices, and not just students, many people will write the way they speak. They'll use the same structures, which are basically fragments and run-ons. And they're, they're not really understanding the precisions and the structure necessary for written English. And so what Natalie and I really have tried to do is start at the most fundamental level, but I think that it's important to add two things in response to what you've said. One is that we don't emphasize the labels, subject, predicate, subordinating, we emphasize those uh, grammatical terms, particularly at the beginning of the process, that will enhance their writing. So um, if I if if I were to say the sentence within a positive, which very few people I've found know what that is, but if I were to say Tan, an excellent interviewer met with Natalie Wexler and myself today. Well, nobody talks like that. The excellent interviewer is in a positive. It's a it's a more enhanced description of done, right? So putting those things in writing moves them to structures that are not only more common in writing, but affect their reading comprehension, where Natalie has certainly become an expert in that area. I mean, I must have referred her podcast, which you referred to recently to about 10,000 people at this point. And the, the thing is that those are the grammatical terms. So a little kid may know what a subordinating conjunction is, or in a positive is, but they certainly won't know what a dangling participle is or a prepositional phrase, because that doesn't inform their writing to the extent their other the, the other things do. And the second point that I think is very important to make is that they can begin to develop outlines and structures for paragraphs while they're learning sentences, even as young as the primary grade with the teachers doing most of the writing, but the students through their oral participation are doing the thinking and the work and seeing the structure of what the text of a paragraph would look like in outline form. And that's the foundation for really a lot of brain work in sequencing and organization. And Natalie certainly described the topics. 
the cognitive load of writing is formidable. Do you want to add anything, Natalie? Um, well, I, I, I just just to build on that point that Judy made about um, how teaching kids to construct complex sentences can help their reading comprehension. I mean, this is something that reading comprehension research has not focused on enough is that the, the complex the, the syntax, the sentence structure of written language is almost always more complex than the syntax of spoken language. And so you can be a great decoder of words. You know, you can have all those foundational reading skills. You could even have vocabulary, but if you're not familiar with complex syntax, that in itself can be a significant barrier to comprehension. I told a story that Judy heard me tell yesterday, but I'll tell it again because I, <laughs> the rest of you haven't heard it, right? So um, this was a, a story I came across in a study of a 10-year-old boy who had average decoding ability, but he struggled with comprehension. And the researchers read him, for some reason, read him aloud a sentence that said, Rachel Carson, a scientist, writer, and ecologist, grew up in the rural river town of Springdale, Pennsylvania. And then the researcher said, so what do you know about Rachel Carson now? And the boy said, they grew up together in the same place because he was not familiar with that structure and a positive. And he thought there were four different people in that sentence. There was Rachel Carson, there was a scientist, a writer, an ecologist, and they all grew up together. So teaching a, a student to construct in a positive equips them to powerfully to understand that kind of structure or subordinating conjunction or whatever when they encounter it in their reading. When I read your book, I, I you wrote it for teachers of multilingual learners, right? Because our students get get placed into ESL ser service, and they have to place out of it. But to place out of it, they they need to have academic language, which is predominantly uh, evaluated through their writing. And so students write with the way they speak, but then this book is showing us how to transition students to the highest level of English language acquisition, where it's like, how do you write the way academics write? How do you write the way journalists write? How do you write the way historians write? And that's what we were missing. And this book really gives it to, uh, really helps teachers of multilingual learners. How do we move to the highest phases of English language, language acquisition? So that's a, it, you, it, we have a huge debt of gratitude to you both. Thank you. <laughs> and I should say, you know, this is Judy's method. I helped her explain it, but I did not come up with it. This is, uh, you know, she she definitely deserves the lion's share of the credit for this, if not 99% of it. <laughs> Go ahead, Judy. I, I share the credit with a lot of people, including Natalie, by the way, with a lion's share. Um, it, it, you know, in, in standing in front of a classroom for so many years, you see the difficulty that some kids have saying too little, saying too much, not getting on point and not making it easier for a listener or a reader to grasp meaning. And it's, um, once you can appreciate how powerful writing is, yes. help kids do that. And to what an important tool it is in acquiring knowledge, which to us is the point of this. I mean, that's the point. What do you want them to graduate with? You want them to graduate with a knowledge base that can inform how they're going to make choices and, and on a very large scale, how they might live their lives. 
because without that knowledge, they're very handicapped in terms of their own literacy and in terms of their own interactions with others. And I would just add, I mean, we've been talking about, you know, academic language and, and being able to achieve in college, et cetera. But it's also, you know, understanding a job training manual or, right. or you know, a newspaper article or um, that those things use complex syntax and, comp and elevated vocabulary as well. And so this and or, or, you know, a lease agreement, a credit card, you know, there are all sorts of things where you need to be able to understand those things. And suppose you want to challenge something on your credit card bill. You need to be able to write an argumentative, you know, letter saying, you know, this is wrong and, and being able to explain that coherently. So these are not just academic skills Absolutely. and competencies, they are life skills and competencies. So uh, Natalie mentioned about your method, Judith, would you like to share your method with us and uh, your favorite strategies for writing? Well, it's a little too much to share in the context of this platform, but uh, it's, it's, it's fundamental building block. The foundation of it is the sentence. And as Natalie has very wisely mentioned, without the ability to construct decent sentences, you're not going to have a decent paragraph. You're not going to have a decent composition. And you're not going to be able to be able to stand back metacognitively and revise your work. So the sentences. Uh, has a, a great deal of importance to us, but so does the construction of an outline and not just any outline, a linear outline, not webs, not Venn diagrams, but linear outlines where the students can see the structure of a text, a topic paragraph, a topic sentence, the support of that topic sentence and the conclusion. And for the longer composition, what is the main idea of that composition? And does every piece of the, you know, that composition, the paragraphs support that main idea? It's got to be a simple outline that they can replicate easily by themselves as they're confronting a situation where, you know, they may need to write a paragraph or an outline. And at some point, that format becomes embedded here so that their ability to organize and sequence information, as I mentioned earlier, is something that they're aware that they have to do. It's not a just right situation. It's a right this way situation. And they bring to it uh, a level of uh, knowledge about it that's terrifically important. And when the sentence activities are <clears throat> embedded in that, it becomes coherent. It becomes good communication with an audience. And that's that's essentially, we, we don't take too much for granted. Frequently teachers are told, tell students to summarize something they've read or heard or seen even. You can't take for granted that they understand what summarizing looks like. You can't take for granted that they know how to write efficient notes, whether they're annotating a text or whether they're listening to a lecture. These things have to be taught. Later, they can own their notes and do what they want with it, but they've got to be taught why it's important and how to make it work for them. So... <clears throat> As we move through this, I think uh, with students, 
and with the teachers who are really very empowered by learning this. Um, it's, it's gratifying to see the results of it. And they see the results pretty quickly because you are starting with the sentences. So you see students elaborating and expanding those sentences. Now the author reminds that it's the same thing, at, but um, which it is, but expanding their remarks with the where and the when and the why instead of the monosyllabic answers that you might be more apt to get if you weren't stressing this in their writing, thinking of because, but, and so, thinking of in written form that it's good to start perhaps with a dependent clause and later even maybe embed one or end with one. I mean, these are the things that we don't take for granted that children will pick up just from sitting in front of books. You don't become a good writer even when you're a good reader. There are things you really have to learn directly. This is why like the uh, multilingual heart of mine is like populating because it's a suicide is what happens to a lot of multilingual students. We assume they understand. And so therefore we there's no explicit instruction. And then when we get the work back, we're like, well, sorry, you didn't do a good job. It's because we assume they should know we assume they already come with this, but they really don't. And that your book is saying, here, don't just write. It's right like this. Natalie, do you want to add? Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, I think, you know, Judy covered this well. I think when you, you're talking, what made me think of when you were talking about when you assume they know and you assume they understand, um, and, and not just understand like how to construct a sentence or a topic sentence, but I've done a little bit of teaching. In fact, I, I um, only adults, only highly motivated adults. So, you know, it's not exactly the same fall game, but I actually, as a volunteer, taught English as a second language to adult immigrants here in DC. And I would say, so any questions? And like, nobody would raise their hand. And I would think, oh, okay. So they understand. And then I get a quiz back and I'm like, no. And I think one thing that the, these writing activities, especially the sentence level activities can do if they're well-designed is uncover misunderstandings before it's too late um, in, a, in a pretty efficient targeted way. And you, you learn pretty quickly, not just whether they can construct the sentence in the way you, you had hoped, but also whether they actually understood the content that you have assumed they understood. Because, you know, students don't always want to raise their hand and say, I, I don't understand. Or they may think they understand when they actually don't understand. You know, they, they have their own understanding. It's not what you intended. <laughs> You're saying um, when students write a sentence, it's formative data to say, oh, you don't understand that content. So we can't keep going on. That's why writing has to be connected to content because when students write, they get to synthesize the knowledge, but it also gives us formative feedback right away to say, oh, you didn't get this part. Or, oh, yes, you did get it. You were talking about some strategies. Would you share with us the sentence expanding strategies and the sentence combining strategies for listeners? Natalie, you know, yesterday, I think you gave a very excellent um, description of sentence combining. It's... Uh, <laughs> It's a relationship to knowledge acquisition or not, yeah. and and what it does accomplish. So I'll do the sentence combining. You do the sentence expansion. Okay? All right, I, that's <laughs> a deal. that's a deal. <laughs> so, so sentence combining is one of the few sentence level 
strategies that has actually been researched and found to be beneficial in helping students, you know, more beneficial than traditional grammar instruction in helping students construct complex sentences. Um, and what it consists of is giving students maybe three, four simple sentences that they need to then combine into one complex sentence. And it could be done different ways. Maybe they could use in a positive or they could use a subordinate conjunction. They have to know how to use those things. Um, so, you know, that's great. But, it, and, and it is part of the method, the writing revolution method. But I would say it's not as powerful as some of the other strategies because you're providing students with all of the information that they need in order to construct that complex sentence. It's right there. You know, you don't need to retrieve information from long-term memory that you may have slightly forgotten and supply it and put it in your own words. So for example, um, with that Rachel Carson example that I mentioned earlier, you could give students a sentence combining activity to but Rachel Carson was a scientist. Rachel Carson was a writer. Rachel Carson was an ecologist. And you, know, you put it all together. Um, Rachel Carson, a scientist, writer, and ecologist, grew up in rural, rural town of Springdale, Pennsylvania. But what you also could do is you could just give them the a sentence missing in a positive. Rachel Carson, comma, blank, grew up in the rural river town of Springdale, Pennsylvania. And then they have to supply that a positive, which means they, they're not only learning about the structure of a positive, but they're reinforcing their knowledge of the content. So Judy, you want to talk about sentence expansion? Yeah, really, uh, sentence expansion is the most frequent type of feed. Uh, the, the question words used in sentence expansion, who, what, when, where, why, and how, are the most frequent type of feedback we give when asking students in real life to revise their work. And, and our feedback is very explicit and it's based on sentence strategies. And the reason that sentence expansion is uh, used so frequently and, and is taken very seriously is because students make, make many assumptions about what the reader knows. And in their oral answers in class, they might give you something like, they fought. Okay, well, who fought? The colonists thought, fought. When did they fight? During the Revolutionary War, War colonists fought. Why did they fight? To gain their independence from, from Britain. All right, not the greatest expansion I have ever done. My, but there's the point. In expanding that sentence, and particularly starting with when, which you can point out to students, how much in expository writing you see how often in expository writing you see sentences start with when. So if you want to try to write like a writer, try that more often yourself. They, they're forming a sentence that has a somewhat different structure and doesn't make the assumption that their reader or listener will know what they're talking about. This is so important. When you're writing, it's to an unseen audience. You don't always have a sense of how much they know or they don't know. And there's the assumption most of the time it's the teacher assessing their work. It's not a bad idea to give them ideas about practice writing to different types of audiences. That's another set um, Thing. We call this very brief, unelaborated sentence that we give them a sentence kernel. They thought is a sentence kernel. 
It's a complete sentence. Told, starts with a capital, ends with a period, expresses a complete thought. But it fails to give the kind of information that would be meaningful to a reader. And so there are many, many different contexts where that type of thing comes up in student writing. And uh, it also is a great comprehension check, I might add. Yeah, I love just all your strategies. Even, I mean, if the if teachers get just the first, the, you read just the first chapter, that is enough to change your practice the, at the writing level, sentence expanding, sentence combining. I mean, when I read that first chapter, I stopped reading it. And right away, I changed the, the, my instruction for this coming year. That's how powerful just writing at the sentence level was. Yeah. So I have my students now, when they finish, when we finish watching a video or an article, they do a, a because, but so summary. So they'll write like a while, the honeybees benefit from flowers because the honeybees benefit from flowers, but the honeybees benefit from flowers. So, so now it's like a comprehension of like, oh, do you really understand that video? But now students are seeing that structure. It's just beautiful how you have taught that in your book. Let's move to two last, three, three last questions. Um, let's talk about how do we help students plan their writing? We, I'll respond first, Natalie, and then perhaps we have linear outlines that they use for a paragraph and for three and four and five paragraph compositions and outlining is planning. I mean, it's it's a way of thinking. For, one of the most powerful reasons to have students outline their, their writing is it does reduce the cognitive load to a tremendous extent. And the linear outlines that we use in this method transfer very well, very easily to <clears throat> text. So um, they're able to see the beginning, the middle and the end of where they're going. And based on that, and their, the, the fact that they've been taught to take notes so that they don't have a draft on their outline, they actually have an outline from which they can create a draft. Um, is a tool that we have so much feedback about kids going on to college and still using the outlines because it's easy to replicate and it gets their thoughts. You know, one of the schools, Natalie's hometown, Washington, we had a little sixth grader say, this outline just helps my brain. And, you know, it really said it all to us. <laughs> we were so excited to hear that because, honestly, it can help mine a little bit, too, if I used it more. So um, that's, that's I think, how planning works in our method. Natalie. Um, well, you know, I would certainly second all that. And I know, I mean, I write all the time as, you know, basically a professional writer. And I need outlines, you know, because it's like, you're, wait, what was I going to say next? You know, and did I already say that? And um, so you can offload some of that burden from working memory to screen or piece of paper, just some, something written that provides a roadmap for, you know, where you're going, where you've been. Uh, and um, I think it also, you know, if you just, you know, there's a popular uh, impression that kids should just flash draft, you know, just, just, 
let it all out and just just write and write and write. And then, you know, then what do you do? It's 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 much more manageable to organize your thoughts on an outline. You don't have to rewrite the whole thing in a different you can see in an outline, well, wait a minute, that point isn't really gonna follow from this point. And it's much right. easier to rearrange things on an outline than when you've written like a five-page draft of something. That's the beauty of your book. You just make it so manageable. And when students, when instructions are manageable, students are less overwhelmed. And when they're less overwhelmed, they're more engaged in the learning. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's talk about our second question, the second to last question, which is how do we move from the instruction of the set paragraph level or census level to the paragraph to the composition? Everything that we present in the book, which represents the method, of course, is built upon what you've done before. Okay, so moving to a composition from a paragraph is much easier, okay, if you've really put together the skills that, and it's not just handing children or your students an empty outline, a blank outline. There's a scaffold that you follow. And it's it's a, a scaffold that has a lot of, each step of the, the scaffold has a lot of value in itself. You follow the scaffold and many steps of that scaffold are going to inform the composition. Have you stuck to the main idea? Are you writing in notes? Are you, or is your material sequenced and organized the way you want your work to be? You've done that at the paragraph level. I mean, for arguments, we have strategies where they can even begin at the sentence level to formulate, <clears throat> uh, well, sentence level, but then if you're telling them to write a pro paragraph, a con paragraph, well, you're laying the foundation for argument, aren't you? If you tell them to use a subordinating conjunction, although Carnegie and Rockefeller were great philanthropists, many considered them robber barons. I mean, when everything is building on everything else, and yes, you can cherry pick the strategy, certainly, and they will enhance your instruction a great deal. If you look at how the continuum of the method, moving from planning, from sentences to planning, to outlines for both paragraphs and compositions is really a very neat continuum. And as they're moving along, if they've been given sufficient practice, they will really move with quite a bit of uh, facility. Now, I, I, yeah, I'll just add, um, yes, it's it's definitely a continuum. At the same time, though, it, it all works together. Um, right. It, so when students are constructing an out, learning to construct an outline, they're drawing on the sentence level skills they've acquired. They don't need to have acquired all of them, but they need to have acquired enough to create a topic sentence and the concluding sentence. And and then when they when they're ready to to move on a bit and they can take those notes they have for details and convert those to sentences, again, drawing on the sentence level skills they've acquired. And for example, that might include using transitions to connect their, their sentences and make their thoughts flow, make their writing flow. And they may have learned how to use transitions in a different activity embedded in different content at, at the sentence level. For example, getting um, one sentence about, let's say it's embedded in content about 
the American colonies, followed by therefore, and then they have to supply the, se- the rest of that second sentence. So that is both introducing them to the use of transition words and phrases, which they'll use later on, and also deepening and reinforcing their knowledge of whatever content that sentence level activity is embedded in. And I will also add that this is, it's a continuum, but it's also a recursive process. So you're not just teaching a positives and then you, that's it, we're done with the positives. You'll go, you should go back to those positives in, in other content. You're going to be deepening other knowledge, but you're also reminding students about a positives. And then when they're constructing, you know, writing their paragraphs, they're, they're able to use that strategy to vary their sentence structure, et cetera. That's why Judah said uh, the writing revolution is not a curriculum. It's tools to help students and approach to help students communicate more clearly. Because well, I can I can teach students in a positive in this unit about industrial revolution, but when we talk about e, uh, uh, ecosystems, they, they could possibly use that again. It's just it's right. so streamlined and so thoughtful. Okay, my final question is a three part question, and it's very easy. It's very brief. What would you, after all this work, after all these thousands of reviews, and apparently you you did a webinar yesterday, all these workshops, what do you wish teachers stopped doing? start doing, continue doing in terms of writing instruction? I, I'm not sure how I would respond is, is uh, perhaps as direct as you might want. I'd love to have, to see teachers be more empowered, have the confidence that they can approach what perhaps is the most difficult skill they have to acquire, uh, their students have to acquire, with um, the knowledge of how to teach it most effectively, that it doesn't have to be a formidable uh, dependence on every aspect of grammar. It doesn't have to be uh, necessarily noted, uh, focused on the student's own experiences that it should be linked very closely to what they're teaching and to be able to feel more satisfaction in, in the results of what they're teaching. Um, yeah, that, well, I, I guess the way I might put it is, and I, I think, you know, I want to make it clear that, you know, the problems with writing instruction are not teachers fault. It's, it's a systemic problem. Teachers have not gotten good training or preparation on how to teach writing and they themselves probably didn't get explicitly taught how to write. So they may not be confident of their own writing skills. Um, and it's hard to teach something when you're not confident of what you're trying to teach. So um, this is not, not anyone's fault, but I think what we need to do is stop assuming that kids are just gonna pick up writing if they read and write enough. They'll just you know keep doing it, produce a volume of writing and you will become a good writer. We need to start teaching writing much, much more explicitly um, and beginning at the sentence level. And, um, and you know, I mean, I think every, as far as what, for what they should continue doing, I mean, every teacher I have ever met desperately wants their students to succeed. And obviously, I mean, it's, it's not a question of teachers they don't, they don't want their kids to become good writers. Of course they, they do. So they should continue having those high hopes and aspirations for their students, but combine those aspirations, those expectations with the scaffolding, the, the uh, instruction that 
kids actually need to meet those expectations. Oh, this has been such an amazing podcast. I just wrote down like all you, all teachers want students to succeed. And I think through your book, you've made that possible by demystifying writing and liberating learning. So I am so indebted to, to both of you. If I had a million dollars and I had one book to give away just for writing instruction, it would be your book. Thank That's you so true. much. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. <laughs> it's lovely to hear. Thank you. Would you combine your your yourself to to write a book on like how to teach tenses, teach grammar? <laughs> That's another whole story. Yeah. You you, you know, there's a, a to a certain extent, there's got to just be correcting mistakes in students' own writing. Absolutely. <laughs> Yes. You know, because that's really, you know, sort of just explaining how tenses work, it's too abstract for most students. And it's been found that teaching grammar in the abstract like that, it, we've got studies going back like 100 years showing it really doesn't work. It doesn't carry over to their writing. But that's one other reason to start instruction at the sentence level, because it's much more manageable if you have one, two, three sentences with tense problems, verb tense problems, you know, it's, instead of five pages full of them then, you know, it's it's easier for the teacher and the student to deal with that. Oh, again, thank you so much for, this is, has been the educational highlight of my year. <laughs> well, this has been a very pleasant interview. Maybe I'll do more podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Take care. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast. My invitation is to check out my three courses on English Learner Portal. One is on creating the conditions for MLs to thrive, one on teacher collaboration, and one based on my co-authored book with Beth Skelton called Long-Term Success for Experienced Multilinguals. Now, on to our recap. Writing is in the service of content. Writing is advancing thinking. I thought that writing was in the service of communicating ideas. But with this reframing, I see writing as a tool for comprehending and analyzing content concepts. As students learn to write complex sentences about content, they understand that content much more. When students learn to write sentences that start with, for example, even though, they learn that sentences after the comma must communicate the opposite to the first part of the sentence. For example, even though Bo loves humans, comma, he rarely likes puppies. Bo is my dog. Students produce sentences with even though in their writing about content. When they experience them and when they encounter them in their reading, they will understand the structure. I hope this podcast gives you a practical entryway to transformative, effective writing instruction by starting at the humble sentence level, then taking that to the paragraph level, and then to the outline, and then finally to the composition. I hope you get to read their book and listen to this podcast multiple times. Let's start our writing revolution with multilingual learners. Thank you for listening. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red 
yellow or green light from this particular episode. 